Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Um, as we hopefully near the end of this uh, gloomy time in our lives from the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, I've uh, I've had a couple of athletes in uh, the recent past who who had tested positive and were experiencing symptoms, and as uh, as they were you know feeling better and starting to return to training, um, they of course had the natural question to me of. Uh, Okay, coach. So, what can I do now? And uh, you know, I've had uh, I've had obviously some experience with uh, with guiding athletes through return to endurance training following uh, respiratory illness, but uh, COVID turned out to be a little bit of a different beast uh, for for a number of reasons. And one of the things that was the hardest of all was the fact that since it's such a well, it's a novel coronavirus. It's such a novel uh, novel infection. Uh, there isn't a ton of evidence um, for what to do after infection and, and how to safely return to sport. Um, and so in my research, I was uh, I was looking around for stuff and uh, I was listening to an episode of the Empirical Cycling Podcast, uh, who, of course, run by Colly Moore, who was on our show not too long ago talking about VO2 Max. Um, and he just so happened to have uh, an expert on his show talking about the very thing that I was interested in. So, of course, as soon as I finished listening to that episode, uh, I reached out to Kali and I asked for an introduction. So joining us today is Dr. Fabiano Araujo, who is uh, a medical doctor as well as a professor of sports and exercise medicine. Uh, he is a triathlon coach and, of course, as we mentioned, um, a collaborator with Kali Moore in empirical cycling. So Fabiano, thank you very much for taking the time and coming on the show. And can you give us a little bit of a, of a history of your background before we launch into today's topic? Well, thank you first for having me, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here and share some knowledge. So I started with uh, medical school uh, around 15 years ago. And then after medical school, I went for two masters, one of them in exercise physiology and biomechanics. I had a huge inter interest and I still have in uh, endurance sports like running, triathlon and cycling, mm -hmm. especially. And uh, after that, I was always looking for more and more knowledge on how to help my athletes and get their top performance that uh, they, are, they were willing to achieve. So I went for a PhD in molecular medicine too. So all these steps forward and also at the end with the goal of trying to have this comprehensive view and uh, techniques to help my athletes to get their best performance. Oh, it's awesome. So you're, you're the perfect person on the show to talk about this. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here, and uh, I hope you will be able to shed some light on this this and uh, a couple of related questions. As you discussed well and introduced well the topic, the COVID-19 is a really mess right now, especially in terms of science and how to work with athletes that had were positive, or even if they, uh, for example, if we start to consider, first question we would do, was it a mild, asymptomatic? Uh, COVID? Was it uh, uh, more severe? You do have to go to ICU. And that that's starting to di dictate what we should do as a physicians to guide the coaches or even the athlete itself to uh, return to play. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, as we expect, the more severe the disease was, the longer it will take to recover and get back to training. And uh, the mild, the faster it could come back. Although, as we are studying right now too, and also it is also not well, very not very well understood, is what we call the post-COVID syndrome. It's a uh, mm -hmm. people that have uh, symptoms for long periods of time, and uh, they are already free of the virus. At least that's what we expected. But they are reporting, for example, high levels of fatigue. If they if it's an endurance athlete, for example and they try to train, they may take much longer to recover from that training session. And then they ask you, what's going on? I, I was supposed to be ready to train. Yes. And uh, then we as coaches and uh, physicians has this big question mark on, on our head. Uh, we don't know exactly, just uh, let, 
yesterday. They have published a new paper on nature technology, I think, uh, just, just discussing this uh, long-term COVID symptoms, what's behind this, and they we don't know. I mean, top top experts, uh, specialists in virology, even cardiology and other areas of medicine, they are working together, trying to get new evidence and trying to understand what's going on uh, with these people. They even have new uh, funding initiatives to try to understand what's going on. And this is a topic that, uh, well, fortunately or unfortunately, is very near and dear to me now because um, I don't know if we've discussed it on the show yet, Michael, but I actually tested positive a few weeks back uh, through an exposure at work. So one of the big concerns, uh, well, first of all, I'd like to say that um, it was basically an asymptomatic case. And I'm not in any way trying to make this comparable to those people who do suffer through ICU visits or hospital visits. I was, I was extremely lucky in terms of having uh, very, very common symptoms, very non-severe symptoms. So I'm, I'm thankful for that first and foremost. But the, as an endurance athlete, the initial thought that goes to my head is these stories about people who have these long-term effects that, uh, that impact their ability to do any kind of endurance sports. And that's something, it's a big part of my life. And obviously I don't want to lose that part. And while, yes, I'm very thankful that uh, that I went through without symptoms, the, the next question would be, what kind of impact could this have on me long-term? So that's, it's perfect that we're having this discussion now. And I'm sure there's maybe a few of our listeners who, you know, hopefully none of them have, none of you have gone through it, but uh, for those of you who have, I'm sure it's a very relevant question on your minds. Mathematically, likely more than a few have gone <laughs> have gone through it based on our listener numbers and just the uh, the the prevalence of the the rate of infection. Yes, and that's actually a good point because if you think about uh, scenarios that you can have, uh, I can think of two main scenarios. First is like the acute uh, COVID-19, and mm -hmm. uh, our biggest concern with athletes, even general population, is uh, myocarditis. So the inflammation of the uh, muscle of the heart. And that, why is that so important? Because although it's not common in this uh, really hair to happen, it may lead, especially with endurance exercise, uh, athletes that has a long, uh, big load on the heart with uh, volume and pressure, mm -hmm. they have a chance of sudden death. So as a physician, as, as a coach, uh, although it's not common, even before the pandemics was really not very uncommon, there is a risk for myocarditis. And if we don't take the appropriate measures to find out if that person or that athlete is suffering from that acute uh, condition, you may risk your athlete life. Hmm. So you got to uh, really talk to your athlete, uh, try to understand how deep, how mild or uh, because they are finding changes in the magnetic resonance for people that was they were even asymptomatic and they have changes in their muscle heart uh, on the muscle of the heart so which we call myocardium so that's first that's the first scenario that we got to be careful about and that there is a high risk of a sudden death okay the second scenario that I would point Fabiano, out. Before you move on to the second one, um, obviously, when you tell somebody that there's a risk of sudden death, there's a, that raises some questions. And I want to, I, I want to dig. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I, I want to dig into this one a little bit, a little bit better. So, in terms of diagnosis, do you need do you need to do imaging or you know something that that's you know in a clinical setting, or would you? Are there symptoms that that people should be looking out for to trigger um, you know a visit to your doctor? Yes, right now we have guidelines that are well published in the literature for, especially for sports medicine physicians or cardiologists, although mm -hmm. we don't understand everything yet. But these guidelines uh, will work between uh, the physician and the athlete, sport, especially elite level athletes that have more access to these imaging uh, exams like uh, echocardiography or uh, magnetic resonance. And then depending on uh, some lab work to an ACG that can be uh, done on the athlete, it will guide the decision of the, the physician to decide if, if what uh, pathway he should follow and that to the point where, okay, you are good to go to return to play. Uh, last, just last, last night I had, uh, I had participated in a webinar with local top cardiologists in my uh, my city in Brazil, mm -hmm. and they were discussing, they work with elite level soccer players and swimmers and all kind of um, elite level players. And 
thankfully, still the, the most of the athletes, even if they were COVID positive, they get uh, clear uh, to get a return to play. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of them, very little, a uh, few cases, rare cases where you have to uh, stop the athletes from training and wait for, uh, for example, for imaging to get better or get appropriate uh, back to the physiolo physiological state and then um, be able to return to play and train. But uh, that's elite level. But most of our athletes are not elite level. They are <laughs> amateur athletes. And that when you think about that population, I would say the best scenario case would be to work with their physicians if they have access for a cardiologist. If they are afraid of myocarditis and you are too as a coach, I recommend um, uh, sending this athlete to this specialist and have a checkup if he has the means to do it. Mm -hmm. Because as a coach is, and even as an athlete, uh, you never know. There is a risk. There is. It's a really small risk, mm -hmm. but you got to be careful. And that's actually not just for COVID-19. Uh, almost uh, many uh, infection, viral infections have this risk too, to infect the heart muscle. Oh, interesting. And then you got to be careful how you go back to uh, training and got to be careful with the the choices you make, especially with you know, volume and intensity as a coach and as an athlete, if you are self-coached, for example. Now that you've scared the uh, the bulk of our listeners who <laughs> who had COVID and maybe Andrew himself as he's sitting in his chair Absolutely. trying to <laughs> try to figure out how he can go see his cardiologist, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, kind of question to answer because there was uh, and Andrew, you and I have talked about this a little bit. Um, maybe uh, I want to say th three to five years ago, there was uh, a lot of attention in the media to the su sudden cardiac events in in ver otherwise very healthy athletes uh, essentially you know dying in place and there's there's always a, a kind of a very low level in triathlon our sport a very low level of incidence of, of sudden death um, usually in swimming and it's usually a, a cardiac issue um, so that's always you know not always but it has been top of mind for people and f uh, I remember one of the things one of the <clears throat> effects of that was that people were starting to go and see their 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 doctors and requesting all of these uh, you know sometimes fairly expensive and and uh, taxing on the healthcare system procedures when they were otherwise healthy and there was no reason for it so it's it's always difficult to balance um kind of the you know your your desire to be properly healthy and, and return to sport uh without without undue risk with uh with running unnecessary tests and uh, in canada where we do have you know mostly universal health care uh, and we do we can do we can you know, provided you have a sympathetic doctor, you can probably schedule these exams at no cost to yourself. Um, it's it's not too much of a reach, but it's always a question of, you know, is this necessary and should we be doing it? But uh, it sounds like it sounds like there's a good there's good reason to consider it if you've suffered through COVID. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And as I said, with other illnesses too, it's usually not necessary, and most people will go fine with it. Just all they need is some time to recover and when they get back to training make it gradual increase volume and intensity gradually keep an eye on your body on your symptoms if you are feeling something that's not normal like compared to before covid mm -hmm. then i think it would be worth to go to a doctor and maybe do a full checkup or a more in-depth investigation uh, again if you have family history of uh, heart problems or other risk factors uh, that may improve or increase the risk of so sudden death, for example, or mm -hmm. cardiovascular risk, that might be another reason that uh, if you had COVID and you are still, especially if you are having these long-term symptoms of COVID-19, uh, to check it. If what was just mild or symptomatic and uh, you don't want to spend your money or you have difficult to ac have access to a doctor, you might use the good sense or the, your clinical signs, for example, or symptoms to guide your decision. And that's always, I, I can't say, it's really hard to say uh, there's this fine balance. Go to a doctor, don't go to a doctor. Each case is a case and there is a lot of, de it depends. Even, even with athletes that have like full access, elite level athlete, uh, uh, athletes, they don't do everything all the time. It, uh, it needs some guidance and 
And usually the doctors and I think the coaches here can be really helpful to help the uh, athlete take a decision because you are following that athlete for such a long time. You can check maybe some changes in their heart rate or some other metrics of performance that may be changing. Although the training was the same, the symptoms of COVID-19 were uh, mild or no symptoms, asymptomatic person. And then based on that, take a decision to, okay, maybe this is worth checking more, checking in more in depth for to make sure it, nothing more serious is going on and you are re risking their lives. So one question I have here is the mechanism for injury of the heart. Um, if, if it's asymptomatic, I'm curious whether, whether we have any idea of what is actually causing the damage and what can lead to these uh, in instances of sudden death, um, just because it seems unusual that uh, there would be damage without some evidence, some external evidence of it. Yeah, and that gets us to a really uh, molecular level answer, which is, uh, as you know, the cardiovascular system is one of the targets of this coronavirus, uh, mm -hmm. ones. and uh, the, I think it's the ACA protein, I think the S protein, which is a target. And as a cardiovascular system, is ex is, it is expected the virus can infect the muscle fibers of the heart and then cause some inflammation. And actually, uh, you, we are still studying. There are two possibilities that uh, might affect the heart. First is the inflammation itself because of the virus infection. Mm -hmm. And also a second possibility is the, the virus itself that's damaging the heart, um, the muscle fibers of the heart or the cardiomyositis. And then uh, both theories look like they have, may happen on different patients. Uh, so it's hard to say when someone is has a myocarditis, if it's coming from an injury to the muscle fibers of the heart or the inflammation because they are trying to uh, get rid of the virus in the heart. And then that, that may happen on the other areas of the heart too, like the sac that protects the, the, the heart, we call the pericardium. So, but that's a work, uh, work in progress. Even in uh, imaging, uh, we don't know exactly how the virus interacts of, with inflammation and also muscle fibers. We are getting, actually there is a German uh, a study that was looking at that recently and they get more insights to the doctors what's what's going on in the heart with imaging especially with magnetic resonance but it's a work in progress and as i would say as the knowledge get more solid we have more solid answers to say oh this is what happens in the heart this is what happens in the lungs or in the kidneys or in your brain because especially with long-term COVID, we are seeing symptoms that are not just restricted to the heart, but also to other organs or systems of our body. Hmm. I'm actually quite impressed with the level of knowledge that we have already and the amount of study we've been able to do about that, given that it's such a low-level molecular impact. Um, the, mm -hmm. the, the acute uh, problems, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of research done into damage from the heart due to you know, external stresses on the bodies where you have a symptomatic case where you're in an ICU. Mm -hmm. But uh, the asymptomatic cases, I am impressed with how much we've been able to learn so far. Yeah, and that's actually the second scenario that I was uh, going to talk about is when you have athletes that are supposed to be uh, healthy again, and then they start to train again, get gradual return to play, mm -hmm. and they start complaining about uh, symptoms like excess of fatigue or too much time to recover from a, a workout. And that that's another area where we really don't know what's going on. And then that's the uh, paper I mentioned that, that was just published on Nature Technology. And uh, they talk about the possibilities and what's going on that might be going on. There are several theories about what is expected to be found on these people. And actually, they and the NIH has several funding uh, and new initiative research to try to find out and they are going to recruit people that are report long-term symptoms and hopefully athletes too, to try to find out what's going on with them and try to help us to maybe if, maybe that there will be some patients with some biomarkers that will have to uh, postpone or be even more conservative on their return to play. Mm -hmm. Okay, you have these changes on your body. Uh, you're probably having more problems to get rid of uh, even the the fight against that or the inflammation, for example, against the virus, or it's something that changed in your tissues that's 
uh, causing these differences in your performance or even your ability to train. And uh, one interesting point in, in this aspect is we are seeing more and more cardiologists that are involved with cardiac rehab to say these people, not just athletes, but even sedentary or uh, average people, they need to go to cardiac rehab hmm. because it really will help them to get better faster and say with safety. That's really, it's really interesting that you say that because uh, of the two athletes I mentioned that, that I work with, um, one, you know, came back more or less as we would expect, say from like, you know, like a bronchitis or, or, or like a pneumonia kind of illness. They both had symptomatic COVID, but not, neither had to be hospitalized, fortunately. But then the other had um, some of the symptoms that you described. So he was, you know, he was otherwise fine. He had no obvious difficulty breathing or, you know, undue fatigue during, you know, kind of non, non-athletic tasks. But as soon as we did any kind of any kind of work, even very easy, short work, the kind of stuff that we, where we would start, he would report, you know, uh, ha- taking longer to recover from that, feeling a much higher um, rate of perceived exertion for that for that effort, um, and it took it took much longer than I would have, you know, than in my experience would be the case with just a respiratory illness uh, in the past. So it's it's definitely a it's definitely a different, you know, <laughs> it's clearly a different disease. Yes, it is. And that, and there is a other, another, uh, I was just listening to that yesterday and I saw another cardiology talking about with uh, some experience he had with his patients where he was prescribing some uh, vitamins from the B complex, which are related to metabolism and the mitochondria. And he saw a re, uh, really good response from the, hmm. the, these patients where even the Q10, which is uh, supposed to work on the metabolism too. And then he reported really good feedback from the athletes, so not, uh, not the athletes, but his patients are taking this supposed to be metabolism or uh, biovitamins. Interesting. Um, well, that's, uh, that's a kind of a sobering look at, uh, at the potential, uh, you know, long haul effects of, of COVID for, for the athletic population. Um, so let's kind of broaden our scope a little bit and leave COVID behind, hopefully, um, and look at illness in general. So sticking with, uh, if we can call COVID respiratory, sticking with the respiratory illnesses, which are quite common, of course, for, for all of us, but for endurance athletes specifically, especially in, uh, in our part of the world and uh, where, where winters are, are a real big deal and uh, we're stuck indoors with crappy air quality and, uh, you know, the, the, the flu virus, which I kind of miss now. It's, uh, <laughs> it seemed like the years of the flu were, were, were uh, you know, were one, one point actually that's very interesting is I think Alberta had zero reported cases of the flu this year. Um, so just in terms of a virology discussion, um, to me, that's good evidence that uh, a lot of the masks and social distancing that we have put into place has been extremely effective with normal illnesses. Uh, COVID, on the other hand, uh, because it's so virulent, it's uh, maybe spread beyond that. But uh, I, I thought that was super fascinating that something like influenza has basically been knocked down so much this year and who knows if it'll come back i'm not an expert i can't really speak to that but it's very interesting data yeah that's actually very interesting actually when i start to see that data coming on and uh, i was thinking maybe i should wear a mask on uh, flights like international flights and (laughs) when you think about these elite level athletes that are one of the problems is like international flights where Mm -hmm. they are really exposed to these pathogens uh, even after the COVID-19 is over, hopefully, uh, maybe continue to use the masks for long flights or uh, certain areas where we consider high risk, where like mm-hmm. with huge crowds or after maybe after a very intense or extraneous uh, exercise session or a race, maybe after a race, put a mask on and avoid uh, some of the common uh, respiratory illness that may happen on um, athletes after strong efforts, for example, or higher external or internal loads, like psychological for traveling or racing or something in the family. I don't know. That's actually very interesting observation that we had from the COVID mm-hmm. is like the flu. Where's the flu? Over? Move from <laughs> Earth? <laughs> yeah. We don't well, know. We'll see. 
<laughs> but yeah, yeah, well, speaking of that, that that flu and your kind of your traditional colds and uh, colds and flus and upper respiratory illnesses, the uh, advice I've always been given by the health folks that I've worked with, uh, and you've you talked about this on uh, Kali's show too, is the the advice that if it's above the neck, you're probably okay to train at a light intensity, shorter duration, and if it's below the neck, and then the, meaning in the chest or in the the bronchioles and the lungs, then it's it's better to sit that out. So this is something I've been telling my athletes for, you know, eight years. And uh, it's something that I've never actually found any hard evidence for. So I'd love to have your opinion on this advice. Is it is it bullshit or is it uh, is it legitimate? Well, it's 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 useful, I would say. Ah, and it's, good. Useful, useful, <laughs> useful gets you very far, I think, in my at least in my conception of the world. As you know, in medicine, we have a lot of depends too, just like in coaching. <laughs> sure, <laughs> There's a lot course. of art too, but yep. uh, usually yeah, if it's below the, the, the neck, it's more, uh, I would say, it, if, it, if it affects your full body, which means it's usually below the neck, not just uh, uh, easier symptoms above the neck, I would allow my athlete to train. But even if, if, if it's, uh, I would say, but go easier to see if it's going to, uh, get better at mm -hmm. uh, at that session on uh, or in the upcoming sessions, and if it's like if he has a fever or a cough or chest pain or even uh, myalgia, then a pain, muscle, general muscle pain, and then mm -hmm. I would say no, let's rest, let's focus on hydration and uh, eating a balanced diet. Make sure we. I always like to say that to focus your energy on the immune system and make sure it gets rid of what's causing your problem. And then we get back to uh, training. And that's mm -hmm. usually really, um, really strict. No, uh, some people may say, oh, maybe I can go for a cross training, go for the gym or something else. I say, no, mm -hmm. nothing. Just uh, because even if, if they're amateur athletes, even if they go, if they stop training at all, they still have other stressors. And sometimes it's family, sure. sometimes it's work. And maybe that might be even the cause of their depression of the immune system, some psychological stress. So, and if you add another stress, with, which is was the training, and then you are, you are not giving a chance to the immune system to recover. And that's a really, in my opinion, a problem. And uh, the neck check helps with that. They make it, make it easier for them to understand. And actually, in, in my experience, most of the, of the athletes, when they have below the neck symptoms, they already say, I'm not feeling very well. I think I should go easy. And I tell mm -hmm. them, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. And probably the worst case scenario would be fever. Because if you have fever, you gotta really be careful when you exercise, because you can have uh, good complications or bad complications from exercising with a fever. So mm. uh, people would say, "Oh, I'll take uh, 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 medicine to lower the fever and then go exercise." Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> better rest. Let your body get uh, take care of uh, your 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 health. Don't try to. Uh, maybe for one, a couple of days to go over your immune defenses naturally. And just because of a couple of sessions of training, but I miss a couple of sessions, then like a week or a month of training later. And that's, that's often the way I look at it when I think, uh, well, first of all, when I'm sick, I just don't want to train. Uh, so it's an easy excuse, but, but also I think like, okay, if I'm going to get one extra session in, it's not going to be my best performance anyway. Um, so it's likely going to be an easy session. So there's the benefit of one session that you would otherwise miss versus losing a week or two weeks if you make the symptoms worse, if you make yourself sicker as a result, and then you have to take that time off. So there's very little to gain in my eyes and a lot to lose there. Yeah, as, as the, the literature shows us, there is also a limitation in performance when you are sick. So it makes mm -hmm. no sense go just, uh, you could say, oh, I will go for an easy ride or an easy run. But usually those sessions, especially if they are short, they will not be, bring you any benefit from training. So mm -hmm. why not rest and make sure you get really good well uh, sooner than later if you can. Right. And if it's if the symptoms are let's uh, above the neck, what are your recommendations for, you know, generally safe training? I would still stick with easier sessions until uh, we have a clear sign because it could be an allergy too. So depending on the season of the year, the above the neck symptoms may not be an infection, but could be related to 
uh, spring allergies sure. or something else like dust or anything that maybe he moved to a new house and has problems with the air conditioning that has uh, air pollution in the new city that might be causing these symptoms. Hmm. So I, I would say at least in the first couple of days or in a few days, try to understand what's causing the symptoms above the neck. If it's getting better and it cleaning out over the first couple of days, then I would go with uh, more intense workouts for this athlete. Mm -hmm. If not, maybe it's time to really take a couple of days off. Otherwise, you may have to uh, like below the next symptoms and then you extend the time to recover. That's what we don't want to have with our athletes. Right. For myself, I know anecdotally, if, if uh, my, the course of my respiratory, you know, kind of like just common cold stuff is it always starts above the neck, but then if I, if I don't rest enough or if I train too hard, it en always ends up below the neck. And then that's when mm -hmm. I end up missing a whole bunch of training. And so, uh, but it's a lesson that I've had to learn, uh, unfortunately way too many times to count. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, it's type A personality. Yeah, it's it's like yes. oh, it, I think I'm just a like an eternal optimist. It's like oh, this time will be different. I, I'm I'm going to be fine. And then no, nope, this time was no different. Yeah. Well, one uh, prevention that I really like that serves for both cases, we, uh, infections, and also to treat infections, and also to uh, treat uh, allergies or um, an excess of mucus that may come off of allergies mm -hmm. and uh, give you a runny nose, something like that, is to wash with uh, we call um, the physiological solution 0.9% of chlorate uh, sodium chloride it's not very common to find uh, in US I think here in Brazil it's very common to find on the pharmacies and it's uh, over the counter uh, yeah. medicine and it's uh, very useful to clean out the the infections and also the um, the excess of mucus that may predispose for inf secondary infection later. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So like mm -hmm. a saline solution to, to wash mm -hmm. it out. Yeah. We've, yeah. I, I've heard that advice before, but you're right. It's not a saline wash is not a very common treatment in North America. Um, and this is something that actually I think I should be doing because I, I actually, I, it's a, it's often a joke on the show that I don't swim. I'm a triathlete who like, you know, if I have a race coming up, I'll swim for two to three weeks before the race and, you know, just do okay in the swim. Um, and then, you know, do, do work on the bike and the run. Um, but one of the reasons that I don't like swimming is because I always get sinus infections after swimming in a pool, like, like clockwork, it happens all the time. And, um, and so, you know, I've had to take corticosteroids for it if I, if I'm actually swimming and, uh, or there's a couple of pools that don't have a lot of chlorine that, that work okay for me. But I think it's just like, it's just, you know, irritation of the, of my, of my, you know, nasal passages. But I wonder if this, the saline wash could, uh, could help with that too. Yeah, I always have a bottle myself because I, I suffer from a lot of sinusitis, like almost like a chronic sinusitis. Me too. And uh, to so to avoid it, I, every day when I wake up, I clean my nose. Mm -hmm. When I go to bed, I, before going to bed, I also, uh, I mean, not a lot. You can use like a few mLs. You don't need mm -hmm. to really, but not. And also, uh, every time I am exposed to like air conditioning or a closed environment, or even if I go to a place where I meet other people, when I get back home, I also clean a little bit my nose mm. and really helps to avoid the sinusitis by a lot. I mean, it's much easier than taking corticosteroids and yeah, antibiotics. Of course. I, I'm, I'm going to ask you for uh, if you have a like a resource for how to uh, for a how to um, if you can send it to me and I'll post it in the show notes because if no uh, listeners if you don't yeah. find this useful at least I'm going to yeah no, I would say it's not harmful and, but and an important advice that I give to my uh, medical students don't use water because it would be like drowning and it's really yeah. uh, un, um not comfortable to do with water. Okay. But if you do with a 0.9 chlorine per solution, it your body feels like it's natural. So it really doesn't oh, bother you. And it's so it's actually an experiment that I proposed to my students, but no one ever <laughs> did. Why is it different? Just because of the 0.9% of sodium chloride, it makes it mm. it's natural to your nose. If you try to do with water, it's a horrible feeling. So it's interesting. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, because like water up your nose doesn't feel good if you're ever swimming and you get water in no. your nose. That's not a, that's not a nice sensation. No, <laughs> no. I, I'm gonna have to. Ex- uh, I, I, listeners, I'll, I'm gonna experiment and we'll re- I'll uh, I'll be the guinea pig in this one and uh, I'll report back. So next time you're in a pool, two to three weeks before your race. <laughs> knowing knowing my yeah knowing myself you're probably right there andrew <laughs> well thank you for that uh, fabiano i think that was a, a really excellent kind of uh, explanation and also lend some credence to the advice that we've all received over the years um and one thing uh, one other thing i want to talk about is uh it's maybe more of a high level discussion but uh, uh I was told, uh, and I wish I remember where this resource came from, a lot of this is anecdotal, (laughs) uh, that it's your immune system that's obviously in charge of combating infections uh, that that affect your body, but it's also your immune system that helps with or really leads the charge in um, all of these endurance adaptations. So in, you know, cleaning up damaged muscle cells after after exercise and then helping helping your body rebuild. Uh, how much truth is there in that? And the reason I'm asking is because this is another um, another point in the column of not training or not certainly not training hard when you are sick because your immune system obviously already has something to do and now you're asking it to do something else which of course would then you know logically blunt the the response to the pathogens that are invading your body so how much truth is there in this and uh does my very uh kind of anecdotal theory make sense so i would say it's a combination of uh two systems one okay. of course is the immune system and the other would be the system that's being affected so if you think about the muscular system when you are exercising you are all the you have all the signaling uh, with molecules that go around and for example they did this interesting study i think it was in australia where they measured um, a lot of proteins that were being released during the exercise and i think they found almost uh, 400 proteins that were increased or decreased during exercise. So you have all, this is, wasn't a bloodstream. Wow. So you have all these kind of communications between the systems, the immune system, the cardiovascular system, the central nervous system, and also, of course, the muscular system. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the immune system is related to the inflammation that may happen on the muscular system, for example, if you have the breakage of some muscle fibers because of the exercise itself. So what the immune system will be responsible for is to go into the muscular system and get a clean out the system so it can recover from the exercise session or exercise boot. But mm-hmm. also the muscular system has its cells and it has its means to get stronger when after an exercise session. So, and at the end, if you think about it, I like to tell my athletes that you got you have limited uh, resources, energy resources when you are thinking about that. And that's why after an intense exercise session or several days of in, uh, intense exercise sessions, you got to go easy because you need to give time to the systems to recover from that. And that means dealing with inflammation, dealing with our, uh, tissue recovery, rebuilding all the connections or getting new cells, stronger cells to make sure you are ready for the next session and hopefully stronger for the next session. And then connected to that, we have uh, other uh, some studies that were published recently. And actually, it's quite interesting the, how it is going. Some meta-analysis, I mean, uh, it's the big studies that try to compile all other studies and come up with objective recommendations against or uh, for some uh, methodologies and one of the recent ones that was that caught my attention was regarding uh, light massage or massage or even like the cold immersions uh, after a workout that's supposed to limit the inflammation mm-hmm. after a strong workout or an intense workout and uh, actually what they found out was the evidence is probably neutral or against it so we are all the time saying to our athletes, oh, after this session, if you have the possibility, uh, you, you go for a massage or go for a cold immersion. Or, uh, but is it really helping our athletes? Because it's interacting with the immune system. It's changing the inflammation rates. Mm-hmm. And is it getting a protection or is it actually delaying the recovery from that session, which would work naturally? 
And uh, the evidence is saying that it's probably not really helping, except for DOMS, which is delayed onset muscle soreness, which seems to help, which is good for one side, because if you think after you finish, after you finish a strong session mm -hmm. and you have muscle soreness, Uh, you'll be thinking twice before going to a done the session, <laughs> saying, maybe I need to recover more. Yeah. And uh, it seems like the massage and uh, the cold uh, baths help with that kind of dumps, which is delayed onset of muscle soreness. But for the inflammation itself, the adaptation itself to be stronger, the evidence is mixed, sometimes even against it. So that's a something we have to consider when we think about the immune system mm -hmm. and the other systems interacting. And uh, I would say that in the summary is that we really don't have the means to find out the answer that we need to say to an athlete, okay, go rest, go train more, extend, uh, let's increase the volume or let's increase the intensity. But we are studying this in, uh, connections. And, and I believe that at some time, will be more accurate and more precise on how to improve the systems. And that and, and connect to that too is when we think about these new training systems systems that are automated and they use like changes in training load, for example, sure. to say to to tell an athlete, okay, let's train more, let's rest, uh, you need FTP testing, something like that. I think it's uh, a big uh, bet on how a Uh, the limit resources we have right now, even when you are working as a coach and an athlete, you are you have all these question marks in, uh, about the training decisions. And then you start to delegate that these decisions to a computer that has probably access maybe to a uh, performance manager chart with CTL, mm -hmm. ATL, and TSB, and some power data, and, and the rest. Where is the biology, which is so complex, as you know, mm -hmm. and we, even as a doctor, we don't have the means to find out what's uh, going on after each workout session. So I, be, I think at least for now, it's really going to be careful with this like artificial intelligence systems guiding our, our athletes because there, I think there is a right risk of injury and illnesses because of the, uh, you know, type A athletes. A computer saying, oh, yeah. go train more, go train more. And then you're gonna you see where it goes. <laughs> you have a, a very high risk of chances and of injury or illnesses. So one, one question I have about this is we've seen recently a lot of focus put on measuring markers within the system like HRV to determine your overall level of health and recovery. Um, so whoop is something that I have recently explored a little bit. So what's the, the science behind that? Or do you agree with the science behind that using something like HRV to determine your readiness to exercise and to put on more load versus something when you should rest more? Um, so there does seem to be some correlation, but I don't know where the, the general medical consensus falls on that. That's an excellent question. Actually, my experience with HRV and uh, WHOOP, for example, which I, I think the problem with WHOOP is it's a black box. So when you have some thing, let's say it's saying, oh, don't train or train more. Why? Where is the decision came from? So every model that's a, blo a black box, I think it's always got to be casuals about it because... You don't know where I'm so the happy you said that, Fabiano. <laughs> I'm so happy you said that. Not that I, I've never tried Whoop. I don't know anything about them. But there are so many black boxes in sport. And it's incredibly mm -hmm. frustrating because there, it's just as you say. And I'll let you speak in a second. I'm sorry for interrupting. But um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy that... <laughs> No, no. We're yeah, not, okay, Carmen, okay, we promise we're not gonna we're not gonna stomp on you this episode. <laughs> It just there there are a lot of black boxes, as you say, that that will give you a recommendation and without any yeah, without without showing their work. If they if they were in, you know, grade nine math, they, they would have been slapped on the slapped on the wrist for not showing their work, I think. I agree. So I think HRV, in my experience, it really it can work. And, uh, w but actually at the same time, what I observed on my experience as like coaching athletes for more than 10 years is when the, at least with the athletes that it worked, when I told them, let's go easy, Whoop was saying the same. So it was really here when Whoop would say something different from what I was ex expecting them. So I, I would say, if you know how to manipulate 
the variables for training load. For example, if you have experience with many athletes for a long time, it really uh, goes aligned with you. Mm -hmm. But for the athletes that it works, because for some athletes, it doesn't work at all, my experience. And when it works, if you are a well-experienced coach, it works the same way as an experienced coach. So maybe the systems in the future may help starting coaches that don't have a lot of experience to understand when an athlete needs a rest or they can train more. Mm -hmm. So until they get a sense of how much time it takes to recover from different training sessions. But again, uh, if you are a, a, a well-experienced coach, if you are dealing with a system that has a black box and when it doesn't agree with you or you don't agree with the system, it would be interesting if we, if we know why, what's maybe it's opportunity for you as a experienced coach to modify your system and be more aggressive or more conservative with training. Mm -hmm. But most of the time it doesn't go that way. And then you start to become frustrated because you, you have an athlete on one side and say, Oh, the whoop saying, or something or another device is telling me train more. And the, you know, as a coach based on his feedback or based on how much training load, that's hopefully not should not happen as a training decision. And how do you explain that? You as a human being that has much more complexity into the decision analysis to make an informed decision, uh, will compare to a device that's measuring just uh, heart rate variability on your pulse or your, your heart. I, I, I think it can be helpful, but when you have it in a system that's without black boxes, and also uh, you have the opportunity to discuss if that is the best decision based on other variables too, like uh, RPE, for example, or mm -hmm. how they wake up in the morning. So mm -hmm. and then I see the value. But and, and another observation that I did that I think it might be interesting to observe too, I noticed that these systems tend to work more with gifted athletes, like elite level athletes. Hmm. I, and I think the reason is they have a bigger range of variability mm. in the oh, okay. HR in the HRV, for example. And because of the, the larger range of uh, variability, it's easier for the system to pick up when it's like really low or really yeah. high. Me, you get better resolution. Myself, yeah, get better resolution. Myself, for example, my HRV really changes a little, just a little bit from trained to untrained. Mm -hmm. And the system, in my opinion, doesn't pick up well when I should rest or train more. So I think uh, uh, we got to be aware of these limitations uh, of these systems. But I, but it should be interesting with some athletes. Yeah, I, I'm going to, uh, my, my conjecture as to why one of the reasons, at least, that these don't work always very well is, is uh, I think the instruments themselves are not yet good enough. You know, if you're, if you're measuring... Yeah. And, and also, you know, there's a lot of like user error. You're, you're trying to, you know, you've got this thing on your wrist or on your finger in case of the aura ring and uh, some of the, especially the older sensors, they were, the optical sensors were just garbage for HRV. They just did not work. They did not pick up, you know, beat to beat variability well enough. We've had Bruce Rogers on the show who was, who had a really interesting analysis of this um, talking about how you really need good equipment in order to draw these conclusions, especially when you're, when you're looking at very minor new changes as a signal, right? And your noise is so, the amplitude of your noise is massive. So being able to separate the signal from the noise in this case is very difficult. Um, we, this is kind of an area of our interest, uh, aerodynamics, Fabiano. Um, but we, we were talking to Mark Graveline recently, who was talking about how um, aero sensors are not very good currently. Well, he didn't say that. Aero sensors are prone to error currently because of uh, altimeters, because uh, barometric altimeters are not very accurate and you need extremely accurate altitude um, measurements if you're doing aerodynamic testing, unless you do something with protocol. So this is another example of like, if you don't have really excellent instrumentation, you just cannot rely on the on the on the outputs and the thing that frustrates me the most and i promise i won't i won't mention the g word andrew but th there are lots of these companies that give you advice based on like garbage data you know like and they don't tell you that your data is garbage that's the thing that drives me the most that that's what that's what pisses me off more yes. than anything else if they said your reading was poor quality and i have to say like plug for uh, marco altini's hrb yes. for training because if yeah. you 
Yeah, if you measure it and your qual- signal quality is bad, they'll say no. You got to remeasure it, and that's I to- that's amazing. But mo- nine times out of ten, they won't tell you that your signal quality was bad. They'll just say, based on your based on the measurement, here's your advice, and uh, maybe that's good, and maybe that's garbage. So exactly. can I ask yeah. you to take a deep breath? I think you're starting to foam at the mouth there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. I have to I have to work on my mindful meditation. <laughs> No, those those are good points, though, and it goes back to the whole black box discussion, how uh, garbage in, garbage out, if you're not getting good initial data, and a lot of these sensors are targeted at a consumer level where price sells. Uh, Medical instruments are basically at any cost, they need to be as accurate as they can be, or at reasonable cost, they can get as as much accuracy as they can out of the sensors, but uh, the consumer grade... Like one of the big comments that uh, DC Rainmaker had for Whoop, for example, was just they tried to make it as inexpensive as possible. And it works for 90% of people, but it doesn't always provide the accuracy that some higher level systems, higher accuracy systems would that uh, that are otherwise more expensive. True. Yeah, I think the technology is evolving and that uh, we see uh, more and more the interest from big tech companies on this kind of uh, health sensors and like empowering the patients mm-hmm. to be more um, aware of their health state. So I, I really, I'm optimistic that in the next few years, it will be, a, uh, we will see a big revolution in data, not just the sensors, but also data analysis. And uh, we are, I think we are just in the middle of the storm and we are trying to understand what's useful or what we should do to make it work for our athletes. This was one of our conclusions with uh, the G word with Garmin, um, that uh, they are bringing a lot of awareness to these uh, these metrics mm-hmm. that people can use. So that is the benefit of them. Uh, but exactly. you, the, you have to weigh it against the risk of providing bad or inaccurate data and wrong conclusions. But if the data in general are good, then I think it's uh, it leaves you in pretty good shape. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, like it's it's always a problem, as you mentioned, Andrew, when there's uh, you know a big financial stake, you know, at play, and that you are trying to make you're you're trying to sell the device to as many people as possible. So you want to tout its, you know, amazing benefits. It'll it'll help you regrow your hair, and it'll like let oh, really? you sleep, and it'll be like yeah, right. <laughs> I should get one of those. <laughs> Me too. Um, but uh, and then they're also trying to make a cheap device, right? Because they want to increase their margins, and so that's where people, I think, run into problems. So, Fabiano, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to join us today and for shedding light on uh, you know some topics we've talked about in the past, but also some very some very novel and topical things like uh, like return to play from COVID. Um, I know that you are a coach, so if people want to learn more about your practice and uh, perhaps retain your services, and obviously you work with Kali, uh, so how do we how do we or other folks get in touch with you and send you questions about coaching? You can reach me at the empiricalcycling.com website with Kali. So we have uh, this collaboration and work together. So I'll be there. Excellent. And folks, uh, one thing that Fabiano, after we uh, finished recording, asked me to add is that uh, for any sports medicine related inquiries, uh, you can get in touch with him directly through his website, which is fcasports.com.br, which of course will also be in our show notes. And uh, listeners, as always, uh, we hope you've enjoyed the show. And uh, if you have, it would be terrific if you could give us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, tell a friend because that's how that's how we get to grow our our reach and uh, you know spread the <laughs> spread the gospel of endurance innovation. Thanks everyone for listening.